Hello folks and welcome back. This is the High Performance Human Podcast and I'm your host Simon Ward. Each week I'm joined by guests to share knowledge and wisdom to help you on your journey to living longer, living healthier and of course improving your athletic performance. This week my guest is one of the legends of British triathlon, Michelle Dillon. Michelle, who's the founder of Team Dillon, is a former world and European triathlon champion and two-time Olympian. And after her successful career was cut short by back injury in 2008, she turned her attention to helping others achieve their goals and now works with all levels of triathletes, from beginners to high-profile elite athletes. She's also the epitome of a high-performance human. And she's just returned to racing in the last couple of years, winning her age group in the 45-49 to year category of Sprint Triathlon Championships in 2018 and 2019. She also says she's looking forward to competing this year and for many years to come, as long as the body will allow. So, let's crack on and hear from Michelle herself. Welcome to the show, Michelle Dillon. Oh, thank you very much, Simon, for having me. Appreciate it. It's good to be here and haven't spoken to you, I don't know, for how long. I haven't seen you. Well, I haven't seen you for a couple of years, that's for sure. Well, it's (laughs) it's been a long time, Michelle, but... I can see in the video now you still look like you're in prime condition. No, oh, thank you very much. I I try my hardest. <laughs> yeah, sure. I uh, I read a little article about you and your age group racing aspirations, and uh, I'd like to chat about that in uh, a moment. Yeah. But I guess there'll be a lot of listeners uh, who who are on this podcast who may you know they they probably know who the current crop of triathletes are, and of course these days it's all about the Brownleys and Georgia Taylor Brown and maybe Alex Yee. But um, guys like you and some of the other guests that we've had on are the, are the people who created the huge foundation for British triathlon um, back in the early 2000s. So I thought it might be worthwhile introducing people to what I call the legends of British triathlon, people who I admired when I was sort of racing 20 years ago and who were who were the ones who were coming across the line first. So um, that, that was the real reason. But But also, obviously, to talk about the journey of a professional triathlete once they once they hang up their racing shoes Mm, interesting (laughs) so let's um let's talk about your um your journey into sport then michelle you you were born in the uk and then you went to went to live in australia didn't you but you competed for the uk that's right. So I was born in the UK. I was born in Wembley, actually, um, Northbrook Park Hospital. And um, I immigrated to Australia when I was eight years old. I grew up in Sydney, um, found my love for running at primary school um, when I started to beat all the, the boys at cross-country running. <laughs> and um, and I, yeah, and basically then went through to high school and won Australian schools cross-country. Um, when I left school, I actually wanted to become a world-class um, runner as well. And my goals were, were huge. I mean, I wanted the Olympic Games. I wanted to go to the Commonwealth Games. So when I was 21, I actually made a Commonwealth Games for Australia. Um, in the 1994, I, I, on my debut on the track, I ran a 32, I think it was 32.25 to qualify uh, for Commonwealth Games. And around that time as well, um, it was 1994, I was running some really good world-class times on the on the road. So like 31.40 through an 11K road race. I actually still hold the record for a couple of 11K um, road mm-hmm. races over in Australia. And, you know, and I really thought, you know, the next step for me was to go to the Olympics. But unfortunately for me, I suffered a lot of injury problems. So mm-hmm. 
I had several stress fractures down, funny enough, down my left side, which obviously showed a massive imbalance, which I obviously know about now, but I didn't really know much about then because I was, I was quite young. Um, I trained really hard. I was actually self-coach. I, I had a, a coach when I was younger um, who was actually Chris McCormack's coach as well, would you believe? And um, we had the same coach. We used to go to the track, turn up to the track together. Uh, but then I sort of took it on myself later on, which was probably a mistake. Um, I overtrained slightly and I really pushed myself really hard. Um, I wasn't that aware of, you know, good dietary habits. I probably didn't eat enough for what I was burning as well, stuff like that. So I then developed a really, um, so obviously I made Commonwealth Games 94, went there, um, was seventh place as a, as a 21 year old. Then I developed a really bad stress fracture of my hip, my left side again, which was like, having a broken hip to be honest with you and it put me out of the sport pretty much for about a good year year and a half after that year year and a half I just thought to myself it was just I thought okay I'm going to try and come back for the 1996 Olympics as a a runner I was trying to get back get back I was running some some fast times over 3k and then bang I got an injury again I just thought do you know I don't know if I can do this anymore to myself it was just it was just a consistent sort of you know take two steps forward then one step back you know, and it was just really tough. So I kind of decided that I was going to do some cross training. Um, and a couple of my friends were doing triathlon at the time. And I thought, you know what, this is great. I'm going to give triathlon a go. Could not swim for toffee, mind you. Well, so <laughs> so I, have a, I have a question there because most people think that as an Australian, that they've got more pools per head of the population than just about any other country I know of. They do have. And um, so... And most of the people I know that are from Australia, even if they don't major in swimming, they have a pretty good school child, you know, school day background. So are you saying that you didn't really swim as a, uh, as a youngster? I didn't swim as a youngster. Wow. I did the odd, I did the odd sort of like, only when I moved to Australia, like I, I mean, I would never swim as a kid in the UK. We just, we hmm. just weren't that type of family. Like my, my parents weren't really into sport that much. Um, so I definitely wasn't going to be finding myself down in pool. So I had no idea, but I did the odd um, carnival at school, like 50 metres and felt like I was nearly drowning. <laughs> and it was only sort of when I sort of went into triathlon and I thought, do you know what, I, I'm going to, I'm going to start, I'm going to put myself in a swim squad. And this, this guy knew me as a, as a world-class runner around the area. And he had a lot of time for me because he knew that my mindset was very determined. And even though he saw that I could not swim for toffee and he was like, Oh dear, like she's all, <laughs> you know, it, this is going to be a proper, like, um, you know, this is going to be properly hard to really try to change this girl around. But he let me, he let me swim 5k every morning. It took me like two hours. I did that before I went to work. I used to work at Commonwealth Bank in Australia. And I do that, like, I get up at five o'clock in the morning and I put myself in there. And he just saw that I was determined to finish it. Never, never a good start to you uh, working with a coach, <laughs> is it? When the first words are, oh dear. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> uh, well, yeah. I mean that 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 definitely shows a little bit of that sort of um, spirit that got you to the Commonwealth Games, doesn't it? The determination, and and I do think that if you've come from an elite sporting background, you perhaps you perhaps do have a different mindset and application to the process than perhaps a lot of other people. Yeah, no, definitely because. You know, I, I always took whatever, I think my head is my head. And so whatever that mindset that I've got, I've taken it into everything that I've done in my life, every chapter in my life. So the, the the mindset I had as a runner, you know, I took that straight into triathlon. So I couldn't swim, but hey, that doesn't mean that you can never swim. That was my, that was my theory behind it. And you just got to put the, put the miles in and, 
and do the work and and hopefully you'll you'll get somewhere in this sport and you know I was about 22 23 at the time so we're coming into the sport really late and when you're coming into a sport that late it's very difficult to pick up the technical aspect of it Mm -hmm. and whenever I mean I had people like Robin Brutler because obviously I moved to the UK that was um you know that the stepping stone towards moving to the UK was okay look let me go and race for the country of my birth let me go back Australia wasn't particularly great to represent you know there was a lot of um you know it, it, it's always the the federations you know what they're like and stuff and I thought you know I, I kind of had enough of the running scene I'm going to go across I'm going to start fresh I'm going to go over to the UK and well first of all I had to do the interim which was um I had to then sort of swap between representing Australia and representing UK and that that was one year of racing under nobody really so I just kind of raced for myself but so I went when you came over to the UK then were you were you at a level where you were able to race elite already then or did you have to start yes. age group yeah because I went to the European Cup and I did all the European Cup races right and I got to a point in the European Cup where I was finishing like sixth and fifth and then fourth and then third then second and it was the last race of the series where I was um, it was the three of us. It was me, Annie Emerson, and um, another woman from Austria who were tied for the win. If whoever won that race at the end in in a, um, Alanya, Turkey, was going to win the whole series of the of the mm. of the European Cup. And Gregoire Millet, who was the French performance director back in sort of in the ninety late nineties two thousands, he said to me, "Look, for some reason I don't know why, just he obviously saw my progression. He said, look, if you win that race in Antalya, in in, in Alanya." we'll put you straight on funding. And I was like, oh, my God, the pressure was totally on me, like, and also, too, to win the whole series. And I won. So I got it. I had a, you know, I came out with Annie actually in the swim. We, we sort of worked through on the bike. There was a couple of girls away, and I was running phenomenally fast at the time. Can we can we rewind there a little bit then? So um, in the run-up to the Sydney Olympics, yeah. um, the sport went from non-drafting to drafting because that was the format that was going to be Olympics. So what? Uh, what what year are we talking about here when you and Danny were? Um, 98. We're talking about 98. So, so was that still drafting or non-drafting then? That was drafting at that point. Right. And had you picked up your swim skills enough to be a front packer or were you just able to work your way through by being strong on the bike and, yeah. and then obviously with your running um, background? Yeah, I was still a really, really weak swimmer at that point. Um, I'd only had, what at that point, only what, a year and a half in the sport. So you can imagine my swimming had improved for sure. Um, I was getting more competent and obviously I was, um, you know, getting swim fitter and things like that. But I was only, I was pretty much coming out in the last pack. And so you and Annie, you and Annie would have been pretty similar then, weren't you? Because Annie, you know, I know Annie quite well and I've done some commentary with her, but bless her, she was a runner, wasn't she? And she wasn't really a swimmer. And, yeah. But, but you know, you were able to use those skills to work your way up through the field. Yeah, definitely. Well, what, what happened was me being a non-swimmer actually made me a strong biker. Because what I realised was I had to keep working really hard on the bike and and I and I, I used to ride like I wasn't running because if I didn't, I had to have that, that attitude that if you, you know, because I didn't want to get lapped out and stuff like that. So early, early doors, if we rewind a little bit back, when I started doing the races in Australia, like people like Loretta Harrett, Barb Lindquist and all those guys, Nikki Hackett were all in front, you know, phenomenal swimmers. And they'd always, the organisers always say to me, do not let them lap you. If they, the minute they lap you, you're out. And I'm yes. like, okay. A couple of first races, I'd I'd be lapped out, and then eventually I'd be like, right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, so I'd be just on my own on the time trial bikes, just or bars, just being like, please don't lap me, please don't lap me, just I'm just gonna keep working, 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 and it was like it was demoralising at times, but it kept me 
going and it, it gave me a challenge to say, look, you know, you just got to not get left lapped out. So that taught me how to ride hard and then just deal with the run when you get to it. So give, give us yeah. an idea of what you were swimming then for 1500 meters at that point back in 98. Um, I'd say sort of like 24 minutes. Type thing. So, so actually, you know, the best age groupers would have been, um, would oh, have been gosh, yeah. faster than you then. Yeah. Oh yeah. I was all elbows. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was terrible. I mean, I, I, in fact, when I finally did, so obviously I got put on funding after Turkey. When I finally moved, I, I took massive risk and thought, right, I'm going to move over to Bath by myself. I lived in the dormitory style um, at the university and everything. And I got put into the lane and they looked at my swimming and they went, okay, oh dear, she's going to be put over here in the slow lane. And I was pretty much on my own with maybe one other. And it was just in that lane. Who, who was Chris Jones there at that point? Yeah, Chris was sweet. He he was there. They, they they I think they were just so gobsmacked how slow I swam. Yeah, <laughs> like they were all trying to give me like stroke correction. I was like, what are they talking about? You know, I don't get this. I don't get that. You know, get the elbow up and all that. Like, how do you get the elbow up though? Like when you come from running and you've literally got the skinny like spindly arms, you've got no lats to work with. Yeah. Yeah. You know how how the hell do you grip that water? How the hell do you get over the water? I get it now because I'm this far down. In fact, I swim better now than I probably did as a professional. But it, at the time, it's like I just couldn't grasp it. It was really, really difficult. Um, and, you know, it, it, it just takes, it takes a lot of resilience um, to be able to sort of hang in there when, you, when you're getting told that you can't even make 130 cycle you know, when you're a professional athlete and you're trying to make these these times. So what I realised was I had to maybe start swimming 10K per day some days. And wow. that's what I did. That's what I did. So because I was so injury prone, when I got injured, I'd say, okay, I'm injured, so I can't run, so I'm going to make the most of my swimming. So I'd go maybe 7K in the morning, 3K in the evening, plus I'd do some riding. And, you know, that's kind of how I started to get stronger and stronger. And obviously it was more, again, it wasn't an understanding of the water. It was more swim fitness. So there's there's an inch, there's a couple of interesting lessons, isn't there? Then that I guess you, you and we can come back to talk about this when we talk about your coaching. Um, is for age groupers who say, "Well, I'm not I'm not a good swimmer. What do I need to do to be better?" It's like just swim more. You know, yeah. if um, you you've just got to be in the water more frequently. Go twice a day if you need to. And when you're injured, then if you're not a good swimmer, that's and most injuries come from running, which means you're not really running at all. Are you? you can you can get by with a sore hip and cycle. Um, yeah. You can get by with a sore calf and cycle. If you've got a sore lower leg, you're not running. But there's an opportunity to to spend that running time in the water, doing more swimming, and really up upskill yourself there. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, some couple of big lessons I think for anybody listening that's wondering how do I become a better swimmer. Yeah, definitely. It, it Like you say, it's not all necessarily about doing more. It is definitely a lot to do with technique and feel for the water. Like you see, you know, you see people like Lionel Sanders, like he's talking a lot on his on his videos and YouTube videos <laughs> about, about feel for the water. And I watch that because I, I do feel for the guy because I know exactly what he's going through. Mm. And it, it's tough when you're not, when you weren't, you know, you weren't thrown in the water like Stewie was, for example, at like a really young age and that he learned how to get that feel yeah. for the water and you never lose it. And um, you know, but 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 what I can honestly say to the people that are watching this and that you know aren't from a swimming background, it, you know, it, it it does take time, but you can get there and you can improve for sure, without a doubt. And I've seen it over and over again, you know, with different athletes, and obviously proof in the pudding from myself. For like, it it does takes it does take years to to get better, and you just got to be patient with it. So you're out bath. Yeah, it's eighteen months to go until the Sydney Olympics. Back back yeah. to your 
adopted country, unadopted country. I, don't, I can't remember where we're at now. But anyway, back to the country and back to the city where you spent a lot of your formative years. And um, how many of you were there? There were three spots. How many of you were in contention for those three spots? Um, there was four of us. So there was Sean Bryce, Seth Forrester and Julie Dibbins. And I actually secured the third slot when I won Noosa World Cup in 99. So although that didn't secure me an actual place on the team, it secured the actual third spot, which was great for, for, for Team GB, right. which was which was fantastic. And um, the one of the race-offs was European Championships um, in Stein, I remember, and it was a terrible day. It was pouring down with rain. I had a poor swim as per usual. <laughs> so I was well back and I'm chasing Julie had a phenomenal race, so she actually got picked in the team. Um, Steph had been picked from another race or maybe even potentially from that race, and Sean maybe was picked as well. So I actually didn't qualify. I was reserve. I got picked reserve, which I was happy with that. No no qualms at all. I thought, well, you know, even though I'd, I'd secured that third spot, it, it wasn't about that. It was about mm. doing the qualification races. And I always believe if someone says, you know, this is a qualification race and this is what you need to do, whoever does it, a little bit, bit a little bit like the USA when they say top three at this race. I think that's fair. I think, you know, they're the three athletes that should go. I didn't get picked, but literally two weeks before the race, I was flying out. I mean, it must have been about three weeks before the race. I flew out to Sydney to join the team. Um, they started to sort of like check, you know, check out my run form, check out my swim form. And they were really analysing me. I thought, what's going on? And I had no clue that there was an injury that Julie was carrying that was quite serious. Yeah. And they sort of said to me, they came to me and said, look, we're going to put you in the team. And I was like, oh, my God, you're joking. Like, I was almost so nervous because I wasn't mentally prepared for that at all. And obviously it's my first Olympic Games and I just thought, oh, my God, I've just got a man I can get on with it. So that I did. Um, but unfortunately my bike fell apart during the race, which was unheard of. Coming down the cobblestones towards um, the Opera House, my bars just started to like loosen. I thought, what the hell is going on? And what had happened was the bike mechanic, which I never put blame on at all, but the bike mechanic did change my um, the head stem screws, but not actually the head stem, which he probably shouldn't have done. Trying to, you know, make sure everything's, you know, you know, 100% on race day. Wanted to, those screws must have been a little bit rusty. You thought, God, we could do with some new ones. And obviously they maybe weren't put in properly or, or whatever it was, but it, it they were just they just came loose on about the third lap and that was just my race done. So luckily I didn't fall off and break anything, but I came down under the tunnel. Obviously no one can help you. No one can do anything. And that was it. And I just thought, wow, it was so short-lived anyway because I was put in so late. And then it was just it was just such a downer for me. I felt I felt really upset actually, to be honest, because it was just so overwhelming the whole mm. the way everything happened. So that was a good learning lesson for me. Um, and, and if I can remember rightly, the tri- the triathlon was one of the first events in the Sydney Olympics, wasn't it? It was. It was. Yeah. So two you had two weeks in did you stay in the camp for the two weeks then, or did you feel so distraught that you had no, to leave? No, I think you know, I, I wanted to experience the village, so I stayed in the camp and, you know, I went, you know, and, and looked at some other events and, and you know, joined it, just, just go and watch, yeah, just the team members and and, and cheered those guys on as well and uh, made some really good friends there as well. Um, yeah, I just, I just enjoyed the process because I knew that, you know, well, I was hoping that 
I would potentially be at the next ones because that was my aim and that was my goal. So I'm kind of glad that I went through that process in a way. It was as demoralising as it was and how much of a downer I was on, I think it taught me so much just about how, you know, you've just got to pick yourself up and not let, you know, that kind of stuff really eat you up inside. Like it wasn't, what I always believe is what it wasn't meant to be. It wasn't my time then. So maybe the next time's going to be my time. Mm. So, um, you know, and to be honest with you, and and I know that I wasn't in for not like where I came out in the swim and everything and where I was currently positioned on the bike, I wasn't really going to run through more than top 10. And then that's the honest truth of it. So, and I would have been happy with that. I would have been really happy with that, but I wouldn't have finished maybe would have got a, maybe a ninth or a tenth at the best on the best run because I was actually running really, really well at that point and I didn't really have any injury problems as well. Mm. It's almost so, that, that almost sounds like uh, he gives one hand and then takes away with the other, wasn't it? Cause, uh, yeah, 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 it was. It was really, it was unbelievable. Like one minute you're in, but next minute you're out. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, okay. But, and then, but the cat, you know, casual observers will say, well, that's sport, isn't it? You know, you, you one minute you're up and the next minute you're down. But, and I guess, um, also, casual observers will say, "Well, these are professional sports people. They've they've got to learn to deal with disappointment." But you're also a human being, and and we all we all have to deal with disappointment at some point in our life. And it's not easy, is it? Even if you are a pro, and it's and it's um and it's part of your living. Um, oh, totally, totally. And and that that's the thing, you know. There's there's a lot of pressure behind like Olympic Games and things because. You've got the support of the lottery funding, which is fantastic. And for me, that was a massive lifesaver because I wouldn't have been able to do it otherwise. Um, you know, I was actually really broke leading leading up to the first time I got put on funding. I was like literally sleeping in cars before races to have wow. accommodation. You know, my pedal would fall off in a race in a French race. I remember doing a triathlon and I thought, oh my God, like I, I need this money. Like I had to like pedal with one leg to try and get to transition. And then I'd go back to the pedal thinking, I hope it's still there because I can't afford to buy another pedal. <laughs> it was like, it wasn't there, but I had, you know, and those are the kind of things, but then obviously funding obviously helped to give you that security and that, um, you know, just, just you were enabled to then just really focus on what you really need to do in terms of performance and go and train. Um, and but the pressure, you know, if you don't perform when you're on the funding, you get kicked off, you know, very very quickly. It's it's a very, you know, it is quite cutthroat. I mean, you know, it's 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 in tears. So it's like A funding, B funding, C funding, and and all that kind of stuff. Especially as you get older, it gets more cutthroat because they say, well, look, if you're not making these these you know these positions in world championships and things like that, then you're not really seen as a potential anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, so therefore you're not performing, you're sort of, you're done. So your time is limited on funding. Um, so you really have the pressure of trying to, you know, make sure that you have sponsors and also prize money as well. And you're very, very heavily reliant on that to be able to keep yourself going in in the sport. So, yeah. All right. So you come back from Sydney. Um, yeah. Does that disappointment fire you up or does, does that um, sort of stay? Up. Sorry? You fired me up. <laughs> right, okay. Because yeah, like, usually, usually, what you find with a lot of people after the Olympics, it's been such a big, long cycle. It's it's yeah. almost like an anticlimax. Is a lot of the a lot of people sort of tend to underperform a little bit in that first year, don't they? But you were fired up. So, what? Give us give us a sort of like a whirlwind tour of the next three years up to the Athens Olympics, where where well, you also got it, selected. It was a whirlwind, to be honest with you, because I mean, well, that's two thousand, and then two thousand and one. So. I really knuckled down. I was in Bath. I really knuckled down. Um, I met Stu, which, um, you know, was, was great because together we were a, a very, very good team. We worked really well together. We started training together as well. And, 
you know, we inspired each other. And I think that was really um, something in my life that, you know, really helped keep me positive as well. And, you know, I knuckled down and, you know, I won European Championships in 2001, had, you know, quite a few World Cup podiums as well. And 2002, I was third at the World Championships. We're just looking at the major ones. Third at the World Championships in Cancun. 2003 and I was British champion and so every year I felt like I sort of had done something quite um, Mm. substantial in terms of results Um, but through those years um, it it was very up and down because unfortunately just after the Olympics we went on this training camp um, and it was a training camp where we went to the um, sand dunes and I was running up a sand dune and this is where I pulled a, a glute muscle and this glute muscle caused me all of my problems then moving forward. And I didn't realise it at the time, but I had to limp back so I couldn't finish this this sand dune um, hill rep that I was doing. And um, ever since then, I'd I'd had a lot of pain in this glute. I did come back. um, I had a lot of um, scar tissue all through my ITB and stuff. I found this. We went to Stellenbosch for a training camp. I found this really good physio and she got all the scar tissue out for me, got me running again. That's when I won European Championships. But... It was just one thing after another. So I'd kind of get six months of kind of like injury-free running and I'd be flying and then I'd be down with some sort of injury again. So that glute was on the left-hand side, the one you'd mentioned earlier. So have you subsequently found out what it was about that left-hand side that's caused you all the problems? No, I think what it was was I I pulled um, or tore um, uh, glute medius, which was never really diagnosed at the time, but it kind of makes all like sense now because I've still got problems there. (laughs) Um, Right. And I never got it really treated properly. Um, and what happened was because that became like there was obviously scar tissue and it was weak, my back then started to take a lot of the load. So this this glute wasn't really doing its job anymore. The mm. back was then taking on the load and the impact. The right side was taking on the impact as well. So this left side was just kind of like just, you know, sort of flowing along. And obviously as the years got on, it got worse and worse and worse. So all, all of a sudden I started to have a lot of disc degeneration happening. Mm. I actually started to tear discs as well because of the imbalance of the, the pelvis was imbalanced. So I'd never, so as I started to get up to really good running again, and, and even, even to be honest in Cancun, I was limping, you know, I was limp. I remember thinking, how am I even going to do this race? I mean, I was running, you know, we did a Florida training camp and I was limping along just going, oh, my God, my glutes killing me. But somehow I, I used to just sort of just get out there and just think, get off the left leg, get off the left leg and just run. And I and I ran really well in Cancun. I really did. And it, and it got me to the third place. And I just thought, oh, thank God. Like, I've you know, I've achieved something that has been so tough to get to, mm-hmm. get to that achievement because this injury was just, just so painful and just always caused me grief. Who who was your competition then? I, mean, I guess Julie was still competing then, and she hadn't she hadn't moved up to longer distances. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, Leander, Leander was the main comp because oh, okay. she, went out, she went out and won in two thousand and two at um, in Cancun. Cancun. Um, yeah. yeah, Jules was still around at that point. Um, there was people like Jessica Harrison, um, uh, Andrea Wickham, Jody, uh, Jody Swallow. Swallow, yes, Jody Swallow was there as well. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, because obviously then obviously Athens is approaching. So this oh. is, this is, <laughs> well, yeah. You you were talking about selection processes earlier. I I, I yeah. seem to remember there was a bit of a kerfuffle over the selection process for Athens, wasn't there? It got um it got a bit heated. It it always gets heated with these selection processes. And this is what I always say, and this is what I said before, is that give me I always said, even said to the performance director, give me the two races 
and what we have to do to qualify. And if I qualify, qualify, and if I don't, I'm out, you know, and that's me. So the first race was in Ishigaki, Japan, and it was the first Brit across the line. They're the ones that get selected. I turned up from, I went, I was on the Gold Coast in Australia with Stewie. We were training really well. I felt in good shape. I was still having problems with the glute, but, you know, that, that was normal for me. So I just kind of, you know, was running, you know, to the best I could. I was working on my swimming a lot with the swim squad. I was riding well. Turned up to Ishigaki. Oh, I had a really good swim that day. I came out with Jess Harrison and a couple of the other girls. I think Jules as well was just up the road. We caught them on wow. the bike. Yeah, I had a really good swim. I, I, I bridged up to the front pack and I thought, okay, game on. This is it. You know, this is it. So I ran. I started to run away on the run. Had about a two-minute lead with two and a half K to go. Guess what? Didn't have enough electrolyte, did I? <laughs> started to feel dizzy towards the end. I got caught just at the line by um, Maxine Sear from Australia. She picked me, but I, I stumbled across the line. I thought, okay, I've done it. You know, I was second across the line, first Brit. And I've qualified, and that was that. So I, I secured my spot there and then. Um, it came around to Madeira World Championships, um, and that's where the other girls had qualified. But then there was kind of some stuff going on where, again, injuries were were a big big part of, of Olympic Games. It's like, remember, it's one race in every four years, and you have to be spot on. And that is difficult to, to get that. And, and for me, it was always difficult as well, especially – Sydney, I was fine because I was still quite young, but but once with that glute had been pulled, I'd, it was all about, in fact, I pulled another glute muscle at the training camp leading in. I had to have an epidural in my spine just to get me on the start line in Athens, would you believe? Mm-hmm. And I still ran the third fastest run split. Um, not many people know this, actually, but it was tough. You know, it was really tough. And Jules had a bit of a problem with her foot and Jodie had a problem with, I think, her Achilles. So between us, we were kind of, kind of a bit of a mess, but... I mean, I just sort of said, look, you know, I've just got to get out there and just race the best I can. I've prepared the best I can. Of course, if I had my time over again, I would have done things a lot different because obviously in hindsight, you you would have trained differently and you would have done things differently. Mm. But but it is, you know, it is at the time you just do what you can with with the knowledge and, and with, with the body that you have. So, you know, I did my best. So I, I came six. I was really disappointed with that, to be honest, because I did – I did win the World Cup, the last World Cup leading into that race four weeks before at Salford. And I felt, you know, I'd come back from altitude. Stu and I had a great training camp. I'd, you know, I'd, I'd riding really well. Um, my swimming, it always, was always a bit up and down. And also, too, if I got too lean as well, and this is the whole thing about Athens was, you know, you're in the heat, you start to lose a bit more weight. Um, it's a hot race, you know, you're not holding as much. And all of a sudden your swimming just starts to decline. You know, when I was a bigger athlete and I was a bit more injured, actually, I swam a lot better, a lot faster. That, that's that's an interesting point, actually. I don't know. Are you you're familiar with Dan Plews? Dan Plews, yes, I know. I know. Yeah. I, don't, I know. I do know him. Yeah, I remember. I was coaching Dan when he was in Leeds, and Dan Dan had a swim background. He was a very talented uh, youngster. He was sort of at that point. He would have been the next big thing coming up, um, yeah. and then he and then he got injured moving up distances. But I remember Dan telling me, if I'm uh, you know, I've got a sweet spot of about a kilo. If I'm this weight, I'll run really well, but my cycling and swimming goes down. If I'm this weight, my cycling and swimming are awesome, but my running suffers. I've got to be between like 72 and 73 kilos and it's critical. So I totally understand what you're saying there. And I I think, again, that's something that perhaps um, a lot of age groupers aren't aren't quite as cognizant of is is that that, um, they try and lose weight, but yeah. That, that does have benefits for what's per kilo, but you might find that your swimming drops off a lot. 
Massively. I mean, if we rewind it one year back from Athens, the um, test event in Athens, I was a lot bigger. I was injured because I didn't finish that race. I made the front pack. I made the front pack in the swim, would you believe? Mm. Like the first yeah. time ever, like eighth out of the water. And I beat people like Julie out. I mean, I beat the, the swimmers out of the water. And I even couldn't believe it. Even the performance director wanted to stop. He went, and I was like, we talked about it. It was like, it was like, what the hell? And I, you know, I got onto my, I even took, I even took Julie's bike out initially because we had the same bike because I thought that's my bike. Wow. And then I run it back and we, we actually laughed about it after the race. But that was, you know, that was that was honestly the truth. And then, you know, you put a year later and I, I swam, I actually came second last at that water. That's the difference. <laughs> so I, I used to work with some Olympic swimmers in Leeds, actually leading up to the Sydney Olympics. And James Hickman was the, the medal hope there. He was a butterfly swimmer. And I remember his coach at the time saying also about, you know, James being really lean, you know, you might think it, it's good to be really leaned up for the events. And you do see a lot of the swimmers coming in now really ripped. But yeah, at, at that time, um, Terry would also say there's a, you know, a little bit more fat makes you more buoyant. You sit a little bit higher in the water and, um, oh you know, you, you, you really, you really need to think about that and decide what the costs and benefits are of, of losing that body fat. Definitely. What I came to realize was that I actually could still run quite well with a bit of more weight on me. So it was fine. But mm. I think a lot of people thought that, oh, you have to be super lean to run fast. And it's not true, actually. No. Um, and you can see that from even, you know, some of the female athletes talking about it sort of in the triathlon scene or the Ironman scene today. It's, it's true. You know, if you're economical and you're, you're run fit, there's no reason why you can't run well with what, a little bit more weight on. And I found that for me, that that was definitely more, there was an ideal kind of weight for me to have the best result in swim, bike, run. You know, you're not a runner anymore. That, well, that's it, isn't it? It's about swim, bike, run. It's not about swimming or biking. Yeah, exactly. It's about putting the three together and being able to, you know, execute, putting yourself in the best position from the start. So the swim is so important. And if you're not there, then you've got a lot of work to do on that bike, which is going to take it out of your run. But if you're there, if you're a lot further up front, that bike becomes a lot easier. Then you're going to be able to execute a better run anyway. So. Well, and there's also the injury aspect, isn't there? If you're too yeah. lean, then, you you know, the, that introduces the the sort of potential for st stress fractures that you've talked about and those those other injuries. And, and the consequences that come from having a low, um, low energy, but a poor energy balance and that the old red reds we talk about a lot. Now we talk about it a lot in common with female athletes, but it's not exclusive to female athletes. And if you've ever been to Kona, um, you know, I've, I've been there a lot and it amazes me how lean some of those athletes are. Some of them have got veins on the veins, you know, and it's great. It's great for posing around by the beach, but I do, I do wonder yeah. what their health is like outside of that week yeah. in Kona. Yeah, it's true. It, it's not. It's not about being lean. It's just, and everyone's got different body shapes as well. You know, yeah. um, it's probably because they're super dehydrated in Kona as well. Because when you get dehydrated, you get those those that, that vein look as well. Yeah, yeah. So um, after two thousand and four, then um, yeah, you I, maybe my memory's playing tricks, but you you continued to race as a pro for a bit, didn't you? Yeah, 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 yeah. So I didn't retire until I was like two thousand and seven. So okay. You know, I, there was obviously a lot of ups and downs with the back. It got progressively worse again, um, too, so bad that I had two occasions um, between 2004 and 2007 where I actually went down at home and I didn't get up. Oh, the, you've, you've ended up on the floor. You fell over. Well, actually, like if I went down to sit down or something, my back went on me. Oh, okay. My disc, my disc was, was actually like gone. It was like pressing on the nerve. It was like mm. a... A, a disc protrusion so I'd end up crawling to the toilet you know 
absolute agony, you know, at night, couldn't sleep properly. I had to take oral steroids to try and get the disc, like, more shrinking. I couldn't get out of bed. Um, I, I didn't I didn't race, like, twice for three – well, I didn't move for three months at a time. Those two, three months were quite um, agonising moments for me. Um, but, again, I learned a lot in that time. It was about, you know, are we still going to get back up and are we still going to try again or are we going to just let this thing – you know, we're going to just sort of just put the white flag and say, say I'm done, you know, what, what's it going to be? And I, I actually had within that time, especially towards the end, um, the last year of my career I went to three doctors for an opinion because I was getting to the point then when I thought, you know what, mm. when my back went again and I thought, is this actually doing me any good? Like am I going to really damage myself, you know, for the future? So I went I, and I had got three opinions. One doctor said, look, you know, I'd give up now because it's not looking good. I had, had the scans and everything. Another one said, 50-50 and another one said look you've probably got another one or two years left in you and you could probably after that you could probably retire so I, what did I do I took the one that said you've got one or two years left in you and I thought I'm just going to give this another go so I kind of drew from all my inspirate you know all my inspiring things that I've ever achieved and I thought I'm going to give this one more shot and to be fair 2007 was a really good year um for me I it didn't take me very long to get fit it took me about three months to get fit I went and broke the course record in St Anthony's. I went to non-drafting. I thought, this is my forte, you know. I, it doesn't matter. I came out the swim from Julie Dibbins and all those girls at the front by like, I don't know, it must have been two and a half minutes. And I rode through the field, got off the bike and ran them all down. I thought, brilliant. You know, this is what this is what I should, should have been doing like two years ago. Anyway, but, it, you know, it was obviously too late. Um, so I, I still came back to World Cup, um, World Cup racing and I, I got second in Lisbon World Cup and I got um, third in, in uh, Madrid um, I got second at World Duathlon Champs that year. I won London Triathlon. So I had some I had some good races, you know, I had some solid races. But my back was so grumbling. It was it was really bad. And um a doctor who I'd actually done a talk for, um, she was a strange doctor. She was a she was a doctor who worked for the um, British Triathlon. She said to me, Look, I, I need to have a look at your back because I, I told her that it was in bad condition and that. And she she said, Look, bend forward for me. So I did. And she said, Do you know your spine is actually slipping forward? And I said, no. And she said, I, we need to get this checked out because this does not look good. So I went and, and had um, sort of, you know, the whole shebang done where I had to loop standing and sitting sort of scans, everything done. I went and saw this um, surgeon and he said to me, how are you even running? How are you even doing what you're doing? He said, you have a 65-year-old back. That's seriously what you have. And, and also I got hit by a car as well mm. when I was out running where I went and I fell onto my back. And what had happened was my vertebrae on level four had broken off and it was floating in the nerve space as well. So he said, you've got a broken vertebrae. Your disc at level five is completely worn away. It's bone on bone. Level four disc is torn and that needs to come out or needs to be replaced. And he said, that vertebrae is broken as well. So we need to put you into surgery pretty much ASAP. And I was like, okay, so what are you going to do? And he said, I'm going to do a disc replacement level four and I'm going to fuse level five. And I said, okay. Turned up in the morning of the operation. Obviously, I'm well retired now. Turned up in the morning of the operation. He was sweating. He said, I've got something to tell you. And I said, what? And he was like, I'm going to do a double fusion because I've been speaking to one of my colleagues. And he said, if I do a single level fusion on you, I'm going to have to go. I was going to go in through the front, which is obviously a shorter recovery process. But he said, I'm going to have to reoperate in sort of six months to a year's time to see how that's holding up. And he said, I think we're better off going on the double fusion. You won't have as much flexibility in the spine. He's not wrong about that. <laughs> but he said, 
it's going to be safer, but we have to go through the back. So it's going to be a longer recovery and a longer thing. And I just went, I was sweating with so much pain at that point. I just said, you know what? He goes, mm. you can back out right now if you want. I said, please take me under the knife right now. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I was, you know, I just said, just take me because I, I, it was so painful that I couldn't even stand up anymore, to be honest with you. It was so getting to that point. So I went in and had this double fusion and I just remember waking up in this intensive care with, you know, sort of everything going on. I just thought, what the hell has just happened? And it was, it was, it was awful because I had a massive hematoma in the bottom of my back. It was like, it's like having a pillow in the bottom of your back. You know, when I finally got to stand up um, about two weeks later, oh, I never want to go through that again. <laughs> mm, it's not, not, not the best way to end a, a professional career, is it? No, no. But, but I guess at some point, you know, you know um, if somebody had just said you have to stop racing now and you hadn't had those back problems, it might have been harder to take. But at that point, you're probably yeah. in so much pain that you just needed to get over the pain and the other things were less of a priority. Well, definitely. It, it, it wasn't a choice for me. If, I mean, I felt like I was getting stronger at that point, to be honest. I was only 34 years of age, so I was. I felt like I was getting stronger. And, you know, the, the performances, especially on non-drafting, I'd love to have gone to non-drafting and done, you know, done more of those type of races. But unfortunately, the decision was made for me. And I knew that if I hadn't didn't get it done at that point, you know, I don't know where, what would have happened, you know, and I didn't want to risk that. So I thought, you know, you know what, I just have to take it on the chin um, and literally just it, it, it's completely out of my control and, you know, I will deal with it. You know, I'll deal with it the best way I can. It was it was hard at first, you know, retiring, especially when you're not, you know, you're not ready to retire. But for me, I just threw myself into coaching, which was something that's always become really natural to me um, and I always wanted to give back everything I've learned as well in the sport. So, you know, that, that kind of really gave me something to focus on rather than dwell on, you know, I've just had back surgery, what am I going to do? Were you were you already doing some coaching at that point or were you, you know, yeah. it's like, uh, right, recovery from surgery, oh, hold on, I haven't got any income coming in, I need to find some clients, I can do some coaching. So was it, or was it a standing start and get up to speed as quick as possible? Yeah, no, I was already doing about, I had about six sort of clients already when I was racing, my last year of racing, and I really enjoyed it. I really, really enjoyed it. Um, and, you know, I, I really didn't expect when I sort of started team doing coaching, it wasn't a saturated market of coaching. Like no, <laughs> there was only I a few of us. I think that was just me, you know, it was just like I was one of a, a couple really of, um, of coaches. And basically, you know, I just kind of put it out there. I actually sat there with my back brace on. I had the back brace on and stuff and I was just building my own website and stuff. And I was inundated with, with people, you know, getting in contact with me. I was really taken back by it, to be honest with you. And um, it grew really, really quickly. And I thought, do you know what? I, I really love it. And it took my mind completely off the fact, oh, you're retired now. And that that was good. That was really good because I didn't have to dwell on it. Plus I had Stu and he was still racing and, you know, I wanted him to do well. So we just focused on his, his career and just focused on me and obviously we worked together as a team always and 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 together we we created team Dylan to to what it is today. Mm. I know Jack Jack and I had this conversation because um when Jack and I started working together in in sort of 2001 when he retired um we talked about this movement from being a professional coach and having a, a name that people recognized mm. and um, I said to him, how many how many clients do you think will get coming to you because they know you as Jack Maitland, the triathlete, and they want to be coached by you? Yeah. And um, he said, well, I don't know. He did get quite a few. And and we then subsequently had this conversation again when um, 
probably when, when you set up your business, I know when Simon Lessing retired, he set up his own coaching business. I know Spencer was doing some some coaching and, and obviously there's a few professional triathletes that have now got coaching business. And we talked about that again and we probably had the same conversation about how long do you have to live off your name as a professional athlete before people start to forget and they're coming to you because they want to coach? Well, I think I think initially, yes, I think you're right. I think that people will come to you because your your name um, and what you've done in the sport. But then you have to prove yourself as a coach. And I, mm. I feel that that, you know, my strength as a coach is, is being able to turn, you know, someone around um, that doesn't really, you know, believe in themselves. And, you know, that's what I did. And I've, I've, I've actually, I, I've worked with from beginners all the way to elite athletes, as you probably know. And, you know, Got, got some world champion age group athletes as well as you know some world championship podiums and and wins in um in profession in elite athletes as well so I think once I started to get results with the athletes mm. then people almost they don't forget about what you've done but they start to look at you more as as what you've yeah. done in your coaching career rather than what you've done as an athlete so I think you know I think I proved myself quite early as well um, as a coach and um, you know and, I, and 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 yeah and I think that's important I think that's really important. Well, you're still going 14 years later, aren't you? So that yeah, exactly. also, um, <laughs> speak, speaks for something, doesn't it? The fact that uh, people keep coming back to you and you've been able to sustain a business because for sure it's it's no longer an unsaturated market, is it? It's a very saturated market now, and you've definitely ha- got to have something about you yes. um, that that enables you to stand out from the crowd. Either it's, you know, I mean, I, one of my things is I, I would say to people, look, you know, you might have a fancy website, but you're never, ever going to catch me up for 25 years of coaching experience ever, <laughs> yeah. you know, be, however, however, however loudly you shout about how good you are as a coach, I've still got 25 years of experience, which is more new. And that's, that's something as well. And, and, um, you, you know, you, you'll be the same. Um, but, but it's, you know, I mean, I, I suppose I, I'm partly responsible for this because I'm part of the British triathlon coaching team. And I've, you know, most of the coaches that are, um, are out there now, I've had some hand in educating, um, it frightens me when I see some of them and it pleases me when I see some of the others because you can definitely tell who's going to be a good coach and yes maybe yeah. we shouldn't talk about that in a public forum yeah exactly but you've got to be passionate haven't you you've got to yes. be passionate, yeah, passionate. Yeah. um yeah. you know you've got to be willing to put time into other people a lot of time mm. and a lot of effort and you know just be there to listen as well and and um and obviously have the experience like you said because you do, the last thing you want to do is is you know have a coach that doesn't have the experience i mean i've i've had people come to me you know even from other coaches just that that have had bad experiences mm-hmm. and you know when you put them right on track you know they excel straight away and, and and that 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 then sort of makes it so obvious that they weren't being coached well before so you know it, it's just it's just um yeah it's just yeah we're still here look simon we're still here coaching so <laughs> that's we are Really positive. That's I'm not really going. Positive. I'm not going anywhere just yet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we enjoy it. We're passionate. So, well, we are. But I was interested when you were talking about your learning to swim. Yes. Um, that's. I would say that probably ten or twenty percent of age group athletes are like Stuart. They started young. They've got yeah. the feel for the water. They yeah. they feel comfortable, so they don't have that anxiety either about either swimming in a pool or swimming in open water. Um, and then there's the other 80% who don't have the benefit of that background. They came to triathlon late, perhaps they played rugby and they're a little, can't straighten their arms over the head. They sit down all day and so the hip flexors are tight and they're frustrated. 
but you've been there. That was you, wasn't it? Yeah, for a while, anyway. You worked your way up with hard work and application. So, do, do you feel that that gives you an advantage? You know, having that empathy for that situation that they're in. Definitely. You know, I, I, what, you know, again, one of my strengths is the technical side of things now because I, an athlete can come to me and I can explain, you know, exactly what I, the process I've had to go through. And almost like I try to simplify it as well down and break it down into points that that I hope that makes sense to them because I know that for me when I first came into the sport of swimming a lot of it didn't make sense. But if you can if you can break it down and say the right things mm. to the person that you know that that I think about because I mean because I'm still in touch with the, with the water every day now too. I'm always thinking about my strokes, so I'm able to then relate that back to my coaching, which is great. And also with the run technique as well and everything with, with, with cycling technique too. A lot of it, you know, you can save a lot of energy if you've got a good, efficient technique on swim, bike, run, especially, you know, we'll talk about swimming, but swimming for sure, like if you don't feel the water, you're not getting on top of the water, you're not propelling yourself through the water, you're not, you know, doing all the right things that you should be doing, it's gonna. You're gonna feel like you're 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 dragging your body through the water as opposed to, mm-hmm. you know, slip streams through the water. So there, there is, there is, you know, I yeah, I, it, it's it's so much easier for me to talk to my athletes on the phone, and I can spend hours on the phone. You ask my athletes, I can spend hours on the phone talking about swim technique, and I'll be so passionate about it because I say, look, you know because I felt the water or because I didn't feel the water and this is what you should be looking for and this is what you shouldn't be doing. So in a way I feel like I'm sort of giving my athletes shortcuts to what, you know, learn from, you know, hoping to to give them shortcuts from what I've learned basically. Do you focus on some of the other aspects of being a good athlete? I mean, you you know, even at the highest level, there's, there's a certain amount of genetic talent that you need there's a there's yeah. definitely a lot of um application that you need but there's also some other holistic stuff you know you need to be able to you need to be a master of sleeping um oh, yes. you, you need to you need to uh, have a good approach to nutrition and a good understanding i'm very strong on strength training and mobility i, I know some coaches aren't so it'd be interesting to get your take on that yeah. and um you know do do you do you spend as much time talking about those other aspects of, of being an athlete? And, and also on the basis that most age group athletes, it's their hobby. They've, you know, they've got 168 hours, they train 10 hours. So there's 158 hours where they've got to be Mr. So-and-so or Mrs. So-and-so. Yeah, exactly. No, you're, you're totally right, Simon. Like you, you are what you eat, basically. I mean, what you put into your body is what you're going to be able to take out of it. That's what I always say to my athletes. Like, you know, if you put in the good fuel, and you put it in at the right time, you're going to have more energy in the day and you're going to be able to recover better, you're going to be able to perform better and your body's going to be able to function better for sure. I mean, I'm, I'm a sort of person that I like a good balance in my life. So I'll, I'll, have, I'll have a very, very good, clean, healthy diet, but I will have, you know, the odd glass of wine. People that know me, they'll probably say, odd glass, Michelle, really? You mean bottle? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> you know, but you, 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 like, you like to drink, you know, you like to have a bit of fun with your friends, you like to have a bit of a social. Um, but at the same time, you know, gosh, you know, the calorie, sometimes eating clean doesn't mean necessarily mean you're getting enough calories in. So you'll have to put some more calories in with like, maybe you need more chocolate, maybe you need more of this, maybe you need more mm. of that. So you can't eat like you're detoxing as an athlete because you just won't have the energy to train. 
So you've got to find what that balance is for you. Everyone's an individual. And, you know, for me, I just have a really good balance. I'll take, um, you know, nutritional supplements like vitamin C. I'll take spirulina, stuff like that to give me some extra mm. iron. Um, you know, just making sure that you get everything in that you need in order to be able to function at your best. I think that's really important. So, yeah, it, diet is a huge factor. Sleep is a huge factor. If I don't get, you know, at least six hours sleep, I want to get more than that, but if that's definitely the minimum. Um, eight hours, ideally, more than that if you need it, depending on how hard you've been training, what you've been doing in the day, you know, you need to take that sleep and, and get the quality of the sleep as well. So drinking alcohol is a no-no for sleep <laughs> because you don't sleep as well. Um, but I think, you know, if you do all those things, you know, you're going to be able to live a good, healthy, you know, lifestyle and be able to keep doing what we're doing and that's what I always keep thinking of myself as I'm moving towards 50 like you were saying before it's even more important to be healthy because if you're not you know it's gonna it's gonna really you know you're gonna really feel it you are really gonna feel it and not gonna be able to move and 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 you know better train as much as you'd like to and, and that kind of stuff so so it's diet is a huge factor I'd like to come. I come back to your habits as a, as a high performing human then, and a, and, a, and an athlete getting older. But um, let, let's just wrap up on your own coaching then. Um, wh- where are you on strength training? You, are you do you favour that? Massively, massively. Look, Simon, if I didn't do strength training, I personally do it every second day, and it doesn't. Ha- it's not like lifting heavy weights or anything like that because I can't move my back. It's basically just mobility stuff. Um, it's you know. It's firing up the glutes, keeping the glutes strong, working on the core, working on um, the posterior chain, you know, making sure your calves are strong, your hamstrings are are working well. You know, a lot of stretching as well, so stretching out the hip flexors because we all tend to get very tight through the hip flexors, as you know, as we get older, even more so than even when you're younger. And obviously riding the bike, going from bike to run, is it always makes you feel like you're kind of sitting down and those hip flexors are, are locked. So loosening off those keeping your adductors loose as well um, and just making sure that all the muscles that should be working are doing their job and the other guys are not taking over. So for me, strength and conditioning is huge and I'll, I give all of my athletes strength and conditioning training because without it, you know, you're looking at, you know, you're looking at injury and most of my athletes are older athletes anyway, so I'm always encouraging them to do it. Um, it's so important. Yeah, somebody picked me up on this and said, you know, are you saying I, I I don't see any evidence that strength training makes somebody a better triathlete? And there probably any isn't any evidence that says if you are able to deadlift this or squat that that you're going to be faster. But I do know from all of the physios I've spoken to, all of the experts, you know, the scientists, as well as the majority of athletes, and that strength training helps you to be more resilient and that helps to maintain consistency. And there is definitely a direct link between consistency and performing well as an athlete. Um, I know that there are some pro triathletes out there and some elite age groupers who don't do any. Um, I know that there are some coaches, uh, Brett Sutton's one of them who's very vocal about the fact that he doesn't believe in strength training, but I think perhaps in some ways he's lucky enough to have athletes that are pretty robust anyway, and maybe they don't need it. Um, But I think in in Maine, they're the minority. And generally, if you go to the physio, the physio will pull you up on something and say, well, the reason you've got these calf problems is because your calf muscles aren't strong enough. Or the reason you've got a shoulder problem is you're not shoulder enough, strong enough around the shoulder girdle. So we need to do some strength training. So nearly always injuries are spotted by physios as a result of a lack of strength somewhere. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Talking about Brett Sutton, like I think he 
his his theory is that if you, you do your strength training within the, what, what you're doing, so the paddle work, it works for the upper body strength, you know, the 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 um, overgearing work works for the hamstrings and the glutes and stuff like that, which in a way is kind of, you know, he's got, he has got something there to sort of back that up because I, I know what he's talking about, like with the paddle work and stuff for sure. Um, but but I do think there's that mobility stuff, the stretching, the making sure that you know things are firing in the right pattern. Because if your hip flexors are too tight, your glutes won't work anyway. Yeah. Um, so you know you've got to do all of that stuff. And a lot of the time, people's excuses they don't have time, which I totally get that as well. Being working, but you can make time, and you can make time. Um, sometimes I'll say to my athletes, especially injury prone ones make the strength and conditioning a priority of today's workouts. If you can't do the other things, don't worry about it. Let's just do the strength and conditioning mm. today and we'll come back to the other stuff tomorrow or whatever because that has to be priority. You know, for me, I, I know I wouldn't still be running today if I didn't have my strength and conditioning work, and that's the honest truth. I think also, and I agree with you that what Brett's saying is, is you know, you can build strength, um, specific strength by cycling uphill in a big gear. But if you think about that, a 10-minute hill climb at 60 RPM, right, is 600, yeah. is 600 pedal strokes with each leg, right? You would never go into the gym and do 600 leg curls because so that any the ability to do 600 leg curls or 600 squats means that you're lifting very little weight other than body weight. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the paddles is great, but you, you'll have seen athletes that have got paddles, but they still got a poor stroke. They're still dropping their elbow. They're not able to, they're not able to stabilize the the arm at the shoulder because they haven't got the stability here. So they need strength around there. Now that, that strength can come from just doing a plank or doing a plank and then a rotation on one side and just having yeah. the, the strength to enable that arm to stay still. Yeah. Um, so I, I still think that there's, there's got to be some foundational work so the body can cope with the extra stress from um, using yeah. paddles or running up hills. Oh, for sure. You know, it's like any training um, that you give an athlete. If you don't have the foundations behind it, there's no point building mm. beyond that because everything will just collapse. It's exactly the same as what you just said. You need that foundation within the body so that mm. you can work from there. The pandemic challenged all of us as coaches and athletes. Uh, yeah. I'm interested to know um, what you learned about yourself and your coaching during the last 12 months. You know, perhaps some of the things that you started to do. Um, maybe some of the things that you were doing already that you realized that were good and you continued and maybe some things that you thought, actually, I might, I might move on from this now. I, I you know, um, I've realized this isn't maybe the best practice and I can find something better. Yeah. Look, what I realized was that, you know, we all lost our goals, our racing goals for, um, in COVID because there was no races anymore, but you then figure out like, so you ask yourself the question, why, why are you still training? Like for me, health is number one priority and, and it always has been. And without your health, you've got nothing. So for me, it was just about staying healthy, staying fit. And for, for me, then I feel good about myself and that gives me a better outlook on life and the way I feel. Um, so I encourage my athletes to do the same. I said, look, you know, your health's the most important. Let's keep ticking over without the racing goal there. But you, we can still tick over and we can still achieve certain things. Like say, for example, okay, we well, couldn't swim, but we can still do the strength and conditioning at home. And if the, when there's a will, there's a way. I mean, everyone that I know that was at home doing strength and conditioning I'd get on a zoom call and, and maybe encourage some of my athletes to do a strength and conditioning session um I'd be doing it at home I'd find alternative ways to do it with the gym clothes because I thought 
you know, I, I don't want to let this go. Like all the hard work that we've worked for, we're not just going to let this go. You know, we, we need to stay, we need to stay on this because it's going to be so much easier. If we keep maintaining what we've got in this time, mm. we're going to come back stronger and you're going to come back stronger than that person that didn't do it, which again is, is, you know, it's a massive bonus because the person that didn't, didn't do all those little things in lockdown that you could have done. They thought, I'll oh, stuff it. You know what? I can't be bothered anymore. I'm, I've lost it. You know, they're the ones that probably came back and thought, oh, this is getting, this is tough to run a race, you know, now or, or whatever. Mm. But, and they feel that they've lost so much conditioning. They've lost so much, you know, maybe they're not looking as healthy as what they were. They let themselves go. And mental health too. For your mental health, it's good to feel good. If you feel good, look good, you know, you're still doing, you know, you get massive endorphins from going out and doing your training sessions. And, you know, this is why I'm still in the sport because I love feeling fit. I love, you know, having something to work towards. I love to get up in the morning. I think, what am I doing today? Right, I'm going to do that session or I'm going to do this session. Mm. It gives me, it gives me something to aim for around other things in life, you know. So physical, the physical side of things is important to keep moving. And that's what I've learned in, in lockdown. It's not, it doesn't just stop because we got locked in. We've just got to keep doing the things that we always do and we find a way to make it work. Did, were, were there any habitual, oh, sorry, were there any changes to your habits and routines that, that you made during lockdown? I, I mean, I know I, I know I did and I, I'm like you, I, I, I try to walk the walk and you know I, I, I explain to people what they should be doing but I always feel that it has more value if I'm actually doing it as well yeah definitely um, I, I, I you, you talk about the red wine uh thing I get my <laughs> quarterly delivery from Lathwaite's and I was yeah I was drinking a bit too much red wine to start with no no more than a couple of bottles a week but I, you know every night so I, I've cut that down I, I tried to get back into a better sleep routine yeah. I, I do my uh um, I'm a few years older than you, Michelle. You're what? Are you 47, 48 now? 48, yeah. Yeah, so I'm 10 years older than you. So I, you? I do. Uh, great. I do, I do my mobility. Thank you for saying that. Uh, it's the it's the great camera I've got here. <laughs> um, I do I do my mobility work every day, but it's just a combination of yoga stuff and body weight strength stuff, and it. it, it but it, you know, I find I, I I create the little routine for brushing my teeth and flossing my teeth. You know, just just to get me going. I try not to look at my phone for the first hour so I can focus on looking after myself. Um, I, I I sort of stopped running by the clock and I embraced running through the woods and finding new paths and and just in, uh, as Malcolm Brown said, you know, embrace embrace nature and and get out amongst nature. Um, and there's an awful lot of stuff um, uh, evidence out there about. Um, being in nature and how it positively impacts your mental health um so yeah so those those are some of the things i started doing i started perhaps um going by feel a lot more i've, I've yeah. been moving towards that but doing a lot more stuff by feel i yeah. uh, i paddleboard regularly in the in the evening now because i've got the canal near my, right next door so i can just walk out and be on that and it's that's a fantastic way of relaxing and meditating so but what about you what what what, what yeah, no, I, I agree with you. in fact i i like not to always live on the watch and stuff like too i think because we're old school as well we didn't have the power meters the garments and all that kind of stuff back then and i try to encourage my athletes to sometimes not always live on you know be always on the watch like looking like so i say run do, do a run with no watch today and and just see how it goes and just go by feel you know maybe maybe you know press start but don't look at it or or maybe put it, roll it underneath. Yeah, so yeah exactly what I do, yeah. Yeah, so then you've still got it there, but you can actually, you might even surprise yourself when you get home. You might think, oh, actually, I didn't feel like I was running at that pace. Well, you can you can have a great little game as well, can't you? Because you can you can run, uh, you can run by your breathing 
and your effort level and think, right, I wonder what my average heart rate was and see how close you were. Exactly. Um, you can yeah. you can go out and run and think, right, I'll uh, I'll see how I'm going to run at six minutes per kilometer pace today and see how see how close you were to that pace. You know, there's yeah. some there's some other fun little things you can do without looking at your watch. And yeah. if it's essential for your coach that you upload it to Training Peaks or if it's essential for your friends that you upload it to Strava, then that's fine. Yeah. But just try to do the sessions without looking because you and I have probably both experienced that moment in a race where the watch packs up and your Garmin packs up and you need to know how to re- operate without it. That's so true. That's so you can't be relying on it for sure. And, you know, I mean, when the, I only do sprint these days anyway, but when the gun goes, I mean, I don't look at any watch. I'm just going, <laughs> I mean, I, I sometimes try to take the, cause I know my running's not up to where I'd like it to be at the moment. I've had a lot of injury problems, but I do try and take my Garmin on the run just because it keeps me accountable because I'm, I'm not, at the moment, because I'm not fit on the run for me, and I just feel that if I'm if I see a sort of a slower time, like a slower pace, I think, come on, pick it up a bit, and I try to force myself onto a faster or a harder pace. But mm. that's the only thing. Otherwise, I'm just kind of like going out there and just racing as, as hard as I can, especially in drafting races because it's so tactical yeah. that you're just going, you know, you're maneuvering through the race within the tactics. You're not you're not thinking about oh, am I swimming fast? Am I thinking, like, I need to get on that person's feet. I need to get out of transition fast. I need to do this and this. And that's racing. So, it, yeah. it, you know what I mean? It's, it's good. To, it's, I think it's good yeah. to have that. It's good to have that sort of like, you know, to have, it's great that we've got Garmin, power meters and all that kind of stuff because we, we get more feedback than we ever used to before. Mm. But, you know, but at the same time, don't live by them because I think that's not, you like you say, get out and do you know, go and run in 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 the woods and and just you know listen to the birds and all that kind of stuff and be in the moment rather than always you know every two seconds looking at your watch. I think that's just uh, not the best. I, I can just see that though. You're in you, you're doing one of these age group drafting races and uh, hold on, my heart my my, my heart rate monitor's bleeping at me. You're going too fast. Will you lot slow down to my heart? Or hold on, look, I'm supposed to stick at 300 watts today. You know, don't don't accelerate. No. No, it's not going to happen, is it? <laughs> you, t- um, t- tell me what else you do. Uh, as I said at the beginning, Michelle, you look great. Uh, Thank you. You, you know, you, I definitely wouldn't have put you at forty-eight. So, what Thanks. else are you? What else are you doing? You and you can't tell me it's great collagen. That's my excuse. <laughs> so, um, you're not allowed to use that one. I but, do have good creams. I use every day. Yeah. I do, look, I don't have kids, so I can I can ah. afford to spend a little bit more time on you know maybe the skincare routine which is which is good um look I, I make sure I wear sunblock every time I go out in the sun um I've been in the sun a lot I've actually we, we don't see us actually got quite a lot of sun damage from when I used to see yeah I've, I've got some just around the edges of where my sunglasses yeah. go on my bike yeah yeah but what I do is I wear a hat now and I wear glass big glasses when I'm out running and stuff and on the bike I'm I'm always protecting you know protecting my skin as much as I can I've, I eat really healthy I really do like I said before um yeah, just really trying to look after myself the best I can. Um, hopefully, you can say I can put it down to genes as well. I've got good genes. My mum doesn't look her age. In fact, I've been with my mum before in photos, and people go, that's not your mum, and she's like 20 years older than me, and she looks probably – because she doesn't have that many wrinkles, and she looks good. So there you go. <laughs> do, you, um, do, you, do you meditate or do anything like that? No, my sister does. She's into yoga and meditation. I don't, but I, I feel like I'm a pretty calm person. Like if I – if I find myself getting stressed, I, I kind of try to calm myself down. Mm-hmm. Um, my sister has got me, tried to get me into the meditation and stuff like that. But yeah, I, 
I'm quite on the go. So you should, um, you should try it. You should try yeah. it. It's, I, I've, I've introduced quite a few people to it um, using Headspace in the last few months. And okay. um, I, I started working with a lady in India. I've been coaching her brother for a while. And, and on his recommendation, I started coaching her. And she said, I always used to laugh at those people who did meditation. You know, and I have. A, she said, I have a lot of friends who do meditation. I used to laugh at them. She started it and she, she after one week, she said, this is life changing. Really? Amazing. I have done it before. I I mean, you know, if I've ever had any real stress in my life, my sister's gone, listen, you need to do this meditation. She'll send me some meditations through and and I'll do them and I do feel calmer, I must admit. I mean, Mm. it is very, very, very powerful stuff, isn't it, actually? Yeah. Yeah, okay. So good genetics, skincare, not hitting the red wine too often, regular exercise. For me, a night after the red wine, you wouldn't be saying that. Trust me. <laughs> what, what else are we? Uh, so, so, so you, you um, obviously strength and conditioning, and obviously you have to do a fair amount of. You'll have to do a fair amount of mobility and core work for for just to keep you back in in good shape, I guess. Oh, just God. for general movement. Yeah, lots of core work. I've, I've actually got a reformer Pilates machine, which oh, I yeah. had since I was um, well before Athens. Actually, I, I got it imported from Australia because back then. The reformer Pilates, I think they had them there, but they didn't have them in this country. So I think I had what well, I got them one imported across. I was obsessed with it because I, I used to do it in Australia and it really helped my back a lot. So mm-hmm. I thought, I'm, you know, I'll do everything I can to get myself on the Athens start line in the best shape possible. And for me, having a reformer Pilates machine was really beneficial. I still have one today and it still sits in my lounge room, would you believe? Since COVID hit, we got it. We got it from the loft, and we put it together. We put it in our lounge room, and we. I do it all the time. So I actually don't even go to the gym anymore. I've got. I've got everything. I'm self sufficient at home. I can do all my stuff at home. Mm. That's perfect. Great yeah. stuff. You talked about um, racing sprints. Um, at yeah. what point after your back operation did you think that it might be possible to get back into? Well, at what point were you able to get back into re- exercising regularly, and at what point were you able to start running and? do the right sort of training to enable you to consider um, doing a bit of racing? Well, I, I mean, post sort of operation, I, I didn't do much for probably about two years, but then I started to get on the bike again. I was doing some road racing on the bike. Actually, I was almost going to try and ride for a professional team. I got asked to ride for a professional team. I was 10th at the national champs in, what year was it? It was like 2000 and oh, I can't remember now. What year was it? 2014? No, 2010, 2010. And, um, and yeah, and that was, I just thought, uh, there's a lot of crashes around me. I thought, do I really want to do this? Because I've, mm-hmm. I've kind of had a second chance with my back. I didn't really want to risk it. So I didn't, I didn't go down that, down that path. Um, but I decided to do a little bit more running at that point. And my back was holding up to a good point. So I was doing a lot of park runs and things like that. And I was, I actually ran, the fastest veteran time. I beat Sonia Sullivan's time actually at the 5K Bushy Park run. I think I did a 17.35 or something in the 40 to 44 age group. So I thought, okay, I've still got something there. So it's a bit of a kick. So I was doing that. Then I get a little bit of an injury again and I'd break down and stuff like that. Then then I kind of, you know, was still focusing more on my coaching. And then back in 2018, I thought, I just need a personal goal. I just need a personal goal. And I don't know what came over me, but I thought I'm gonna I'm gonna try try a triathlon. And I started swimming and I'm not even kidding Simon. I couldn't swim two lengths without stopping. I was like <laughs> I was out of breath. I thought I've totally forgotten how to swim. I hadn't swum for 10 years, would you believe? 10 years. 
got back in there. That was one thing I really struggled with. In fact, when I first went to my very first race, which was a world um, championship qualifier at Dorney Lake, I got my ass absolutely kicked in the swim. In the swim, I got, they came out a minute, I think it was ahead of me in the swim, over 750 metres. I thought, oh, my God, like, seriously. I was actually beating myself up halfway around the swim. I was going, you idiot, you didn't swim enough. You idiot, you didn't swim enough. <laughs> so um, I got out of the swim and I did what I always do on the bike and I just hammered the bike on my own, um, caught, bridged the gap to about 20 seconds, got onto the run and I caught them on the run and I won the race. But then I got to World Championships and I thought, I'm not making that mistake. So World Championships 2018, I led out the swim and I was never led a swim in my life, but I swam – um, outswam people like Samantha Warren, who I've never outswam. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. She was in my race and I thought, where, where is everyone? I looked back and I had about 10 second gap. I was swimming really well. Um, I've got the best training partner in Stewie's feet. <laughs> so I've got, he, 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 uh, he got me in really good shape. And, um, and I actually won my age group that day. And I also did the fastest time out of all age groups. And I thought, wow, I was just gobsmacked. And I thought, okay, well, this, this gives me an incentive now to see how how much more I've got in me and how long I can keep this going for. So it's kind of kept me in there ever since. So obviously I've only had two world championships. That was 218, 219. I won in 219 as well in the sun. Then we haven't raced since. And I don't think we're going to race this year. I hear a lot of age groupers saying it's not fair that ex-pros should come back and race age group. They've had their day, you know, they're, they're just, they're going to win. It's not fair. I'm not going to win now because they're in there. Um, I don't agree with that. Personally, I think you know if if they want to race, that's great. I'd rather see them racing than uh, than just getting fat and old, you know. And why shouldn't they? Um, but have you have you had any negative pushback from people about that? A little bit, you know. Like when I when I first came back and raced, I, I saw a few comments and things. But to be honest with you, it makes me more fired up because you know I'm not I'm not doing this for anyone else. I'm doing this for my own personal goals. And and mm. you know I think everyone has a right to still race. I mean, there's no other category that we can go into. No. And this isn't this isn't particularly easy for me. It's not like I'm winning with ease here. I have to train really hard. Mm. I have to do all. The, I have to be really dedicated um, to put you know a lot of effort into this and day in day out. My back's always really bad. Um, I'm always trying to manage injury all the time. But I just want to be out there. In you know the, the reason I came back was to inspire myself to begin with, and then inspire others as well off the back mm. of it because that's what life's about. It's about inspiring other people. Now, if I can still do it with double fusion, then why can't someone else do it? And I get a lot of people contacting me about their backs a lot. And I respond to them and we, we, you know, I try and give them as much advice as possible, even give them the surgeon that I went to all that kind of stuff. So therefore I feel like I'm actually inspiring people because Mm -hmm. people are like, wow, how are you still doing this with your back? You know, I've got a bad back, you know, what's your advice on this? What's your advice on that? So I believe that life's about inspiring, you know, inspiring each each other and um you know i want to be down there racing with people and, and pushing myself just like everyone else so i think i have every right to do that too and i think i think it you know people should embrace that rather than yeah. be against it um and you know yeah like we can race together like you know if you come up say hi like you know i, I just want to be out there helping people um you know i'm obviously competitive too i want to win 
Um, but, you know, I'm sure people would want to beat me and I'm sure I'm going to get beaten at some point. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> well, that's, I mean, if anybody knows, a, you know, an ex-professional athlete in any sport, they're, they're, they're not going to step aside just so that your sport's not like that. Like, um, oh, it's your turn today. You know, it's the best person on the day that wins. And there's no, there's no way you're going to stop two metres short of the line, is there? And, and just welcome everybody home and then come in fourth, you know. But, oh, um, but most most age groupers don't get into it to be winning. I know some people do, but it's the accomplishment and then they find they're pretty good at it. But yeah, I, I think most of the people I know that like racing want to know that they've run, they've had a great race. And, you know, take take the crop, but Stuart will be the same. Alistair and Johnny. Alistair, Alistair I guess, or Johnny or any of those would rather... If they won easily, they would get less less satisfaction out of that than they would getting beaten into second place with a great competitive race. Exactly, but like like, like we mentioned, you talk about this a little bit actually. We we always say that like when we were like you know training our butts off basically as a professional athlete, trying to make it like scrimping and scraping, like I was sleeping in cars, you know, all this kind of stuff. These people racing age group will probably had a great career. You know, they're going out socialising, having drinks, and that. I had to mm. give up all of that. Mm. I had to give up all of that social years of my life to to try to make it as a professional athlete. wasn't easy, you know, the highs and the lows, all the rest of it, um, you know. But so, okay, then they come into the sport and they've, they've had their life and they've done all this and then they want to come in and race, but they don't want you to race with them. It's like it doesn't really make sense. <laughs> it's like, well, hold on, you know, I mean, I'm still in the sport because I want to be in the sport. You know, I don't want to be, I don't want to do the reverse and be like, I want to be an alcoholic now and go out. <laughs> you don't know. I want to be here and I want to be doing the sport just like you guys are. So, you know. Yeah. Well, yeah. and, and the thing is, as well, as you get older, if you're if you're out there, it's a game of last man standing. Certainly, as you if you're still racing when you get to 57, then there'll be there'll be less people in your age group and um and it, and it will be a, a game of last last person standing so get at that point getting to the start line is the victory isn't it not crossing the line first getting to the start line is the victory oh you know what? I've, I've met so many inspiring people honestly um so many inspiring people in the world championships i met a lady called mary i can't remember her second name at the world champs in 2018 she was 82 i was like 82 <laughs> How are you still doing this? She won a rage group. She was like so fragile, bless her. And I thought, but you're such an inspiring lady. Like oh, Mary, um, oh no, um Do you know her? English girl, lady. Yeah, yeah, she was English. Yeah, um, oh, I can't think. Somebody will remind me. If we had John Levison here, he'd know straight away. Yeah, no, 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 you're not talking about Daft Belt, are you? No, Daphne Belt's another inspiration. Yeah, which, no, I can't I can't think which Mary is, but John John Levison will write in and tell us, no doubt. Yeah, he will. And 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 that's the thing, you know, and I look at these people and I think, wow, because you know, like when I, you know, I don't know how long I'm going to be doing this sport for. No, none of us do because it's really the mind is willing, but the body is the thing that will say no more. You know, that's the thing. Mm. So as, as long as my mind's willing and my body still wants to go, like I'm going to keep going as long as I can because I love being at the races. Like, oh, we just raced a little race at the weekend and it was a small low-key race, but it, we just love it. You know, we're getting up at 3 o'clock in the morning, get to the race at 7 o'clock, get home, feel super chuffed with yourself. You know, you've done something pr- productive in the day. And then you get on with the rest of your day. And it's like, it's such a good feeling. It's like, you know, we're not, we, we, I mean, even Stuart, since I, mean, I never thought he would come back and race actually age group, but he said to me, do you know what? I, I actually enjoyed so much that I'm going to, I'm def- definitely going to race age group. And I've heard people like Alistair say it too. So Alistair came and stayed with us one night. This was um, a couple of years ago. And um, he was on his way to a race in um, Perth. Um, I think it was Western Australia, Ironman or something. And he, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. He spun with us in the morning and he said, wow, you guys are still moving. I mean, you guys are going strong. I'm well impressed. 
He goes, I'm going to be doing what you're doing when I'm your age. And I was like, well, there you go. We've already inspired an Olympic champion because, you know, he he, was, <laughs> he sees us pushing ourselves, getting up the crack of dawn to go swimming with him, and we were doing the same set. It's like, wow, you know, great. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah I, I went to uh, – uh, and I think it's great for coaches and athletes to support on races as well, to, to marshal, to, yeah. to volunteer. I was supporting some athletes at the Keltman at the weekend. So I had to drive all the way up to the far north of Scotland. It's a, it was a marathon journey in itself just to get there. Spectacular countryside. Um, yeah. Three o'clock start, in bed at one thirty. So that's a 23-hour 20, day. And uh, and I did a 15K mountain sort of walk with them as well, which was, uh, wow. um, you know, but it, but it was great. And it, it really inspires me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it keeps you going. It keeps you young, doesn't it? For that's, sure. It keeps you young for as long as possible. Maybe that's why we, we are looking young because we, we, we keep, you know, doing what we're doing on a day-to-day and, um, yeah, keep I, it going for many, many years. I'll see you in 10 years' time. You're going, I'm sure you've changed. <laughs> I'll be all like haggard. I'll be drinking my red wine. <laughs> well, at 67, we'll be on the uh, – we'll, we'll be coming up to 750 episodes of the podcast then. Hopefully I can get to 1,000 episodes before I have to call it a, a draw. There we go. Brilliant. Well, Michelle, it's been fantastic. Hopefully people who are listening to this will be inspired by your story, particularly the recovery from that sort of back injury, which would have sidelined most people. Um, Hopefully they will see you at races and come up and um, uh, embrace the fact that they're they're racing alongside an Olympian and, um, you know, they can uh, benefit from some of your experience and enthusiasm. But it's been fantastic to have you on the show today. Thank you for sharing your story with us. Thanks so much, Simon. I really appreciate it. It's been fun. It's been a lot of fun. So thanks for having me. And um, yeah, keep up all the all the good work that you're doing with all the podcasts and, and all your athletes and stuff as well and all your own training too. I will do, Michelle. And um, let's let's try and make it a reunion then for 10 years' time. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. And we can laugh about this day. We'll look back and go, God, look what we used to look like then. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be wearing a hat and glasses. <laughs> I'll, have a, I'll have a sort of Ragnar Ragnarsson Viking beard. <laughs> yeah. nice one Simon it, it's thanks. been a blast Michelle thank you for thank being you. here and listeners thanks once again for coming along on this journey see you next week thank you to Michelle for joining me on this week's high performance human podcast you can find links to everything we chatted about in the show notes below now if you don't mind I've got two actions for you if you enjoyed this podcast please could you hop onto iTunes and leave a rating and more importantly a review Alternatively, or if you're feeling generous as well as, please go onto your favourite social media platform and share with as many friends as possible. Right, that's it for this week. I'll be back in seven days' time with another great guest. But for now, stay healthy and stay focused on being a high-performance human in every aspect of your life. 